BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. My solvable is to find the ways to end civil armed conflicts and to find reconciliation. That's Juan Manuel Santos, former president of Colombia, who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 for his role in ending more than 50 years of conflict in that country. Now, as you can tell from my accent, I'm Irish. I grew up in the Republic of Ireland, which was far from the violence and the terror happening up in Northern Ireland at the time. And I was too young to vote in the referendum for the Good Friday Agreement, which was this incredible development in the peace process between Ireland and Britain and Northern Ireland. But I have to say, I remember so much relief and just such huge joy all over the country when the agreement was ratified and the violence was over. Now, in Ireland, it hasn't been a perfect peace, but certainly lives were saved and sanity was restored to this region that was in complete turmoil. So I was reading this UN report and 100 years ago, whenever there was war, 90% of the casualties were military personnel and 10% were civilians, mainly women and children. And now that number has totally reversed. In a war today, 90% of casualties are civilians. To understand how difficult it is to end a civil war or any armed conflict, really, perhaps it's useful to look at the conflicts ongoing today. There's this ongoing conflict mapping project. It's called the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. And this year, just up until May of 2019, they reported over 8,000 deaths in places like India, Syria, Yemen and Nigeria. And across the world, overall violence causes 1.6 million deaths every year. 
conflicts in Syria and in Nigeria and in Yemen today, sometimes I think they look intractable. Like, how on earth could we even hope to see an end to these terrible times? But other wars have ended. Other conflicts, like the one in Northern Ireland, they seemed endless too, but they did end. And our guest today knows more than most about just how to make peace. As president of Colombia, he was instrumental in bringing to a close a decades-long conflict between the government, paramilitary groups and communist guerrillas like the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who you probably know as FARC. Millions of Colombians were displaced through the years of the conflict and 220,000 people were killed. So how did Colombia pull through? Former President Santos discusses how. He's here with Anne Applebaum, who's reported from Colombia in the past herself. There are tons of fascinating insights in here, so let's get into it. Juan Manuel Santos, when you became president of Colombia, you were faced with one of the longest running, most insoluble civil wars in the world. When you begin thinking about how to solve a problem like that, it seems intractable, it can't end. How do you break the problem down? What do you think of first? What was your first instinct? My first instinct was to try to get a complete picture of the problem and uh, try to generate the necessary conditions to solve it. Many times uh, this is not done. And when you don't have the necessary conditions uh, at your disposal, it is impossible to solve a conflict of this nature. What do you mean by conditions? What exactly were you talking about? What, 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 what was it that wasn't known? I uh, studied uh, why my predecessors failed, because all of them tried to negotiate peace. And I studied more than 17 conflicts around the world. Some of them were successful in being uh, ended, some of them not. But I studied each and every one of these conflicts and extracted what was applicable to our conflict and the lessons that I should learn of what to do and what not to do. And when I had those conditions ready, I then started negotiations. Conditions like you have to have the military balance of power in the favor of the state. As long as the insurgency, the guerrillas, think they can win by using violence it's very difficult to negotiate peace. You need the commanders of the insurgency to personally consider that for them, on a personal level, it's better to negotiate a peace agreement than to continue the war. And something that is very, very necessary in today's world, any asymmetric war in any part of the world needs the support of the region and, if necessary, of the international community to reach an agreement. So these conditions were identified and then created because conditions uh, don't appear just uh, out of the blue. You have to create those conditions, and we created those conditions in the case of Colombia. And what did you do first? What was your first effort in that direction? Well, my first effort was to strengthen our military. And I had the opportunity of doing that because I was Minister of Defense before being president. And also to use the carrot and the stick with the military commanders 
telling them that they personally would be better off if they negotiate peace. And something that I did, which was quite controversial at the moment, was uh, making peace with our neighbors in order to seek their support. Chavez in Venezuela... Who's not popular in Colombia. ...was very unpopular, and we, we didn't have diplomatic relations or even trade relations with Venezuela at that time. And I made peace with him. Also with President Correa in Ecuador, the south of Colombia, we did not have diplomatic or even trade relations with Ecuador either, and we needed them to support the peace process, otherwise the peace process would not be successful. So I made peace with both of them and with other neighbors, which we, we did not have at that, at that time, a good relationships, uh, Brazil and Peru and the rest of Latin America. I know that one of the other things you did is that you sought to give the rebel leaders some incentive to join the political process in Colombia. In other words, to bring somehow bring them in, allow them to have a political party, allow them to be elected. And this, of course, was also controversial because many people feel that these are criminals and they should be in jail. Can you explain why you thought that was necessary and whether you think it worked? Well, every peace process boils down to where you draw the line between peace and justice. No matter where you draw the line, there will always be some people from one side seeking more justice or from the other side seeking more peace. So to make peace is not very popular. And this is a, an experience that all peacemakers have had uh, during the recent history. Also, in a process of this sort, what are the guerrillas fighting for? They want to change the country. They want uh, political power. And you have to give them a way out, a dignified way out, if you want them to lay down their arms. And the way to do that is to offer them a space in our democracy. And uh, almost every peace process around the world has to give the counterpart some guarantees that they can continue their struggle without violence through democratic means. And this is an essential part of any agreement. Yes, this is what was done in Northern Ireland as well. Absolutely. And every other conflict in the world has been solved by giving the counterparts some kind of guarantees in their democratic life. Otherwise, they will never give up their arms. Unless you defeat them militarily, and exterminate them, which is something impossible. In the case of Colombia, it was impossible. Uh, then you have to negotiate. And, and negotiations mean making transactions. In the case of Colombia, for example, I gave them uh, 10 places in our Congress, five in the Senate, five in the House of Representatives, to guarantee them for th three periods representation in Congress. And they were satisfied with that, and I think that was an essential part of the agreement. When you do that, though, don't you risk, and I, I know this this was, you know, this did happen in Colombia, um, don't you risk losing public support? The public is angry at these people. They're terrorists. They've caused all this damage. They've killed people. They've forced people to leave the country. They've been very destructive. So how do you bring the public along and convince them that this is trade-off between peace and justice is worth it? When I became president, I was the most popular politician in Colombia. I had more than 85% favorability. As soon as I talked about negotiating peace, I was warned, this will cost you your political capital. 
people will not understand that you, a very effective hawk, was elected because you were successful making war. You now sit down with the terrorists to make peace. Uh, but it's the only way to finish the war through a negotiation. And so you have to be able to do what is correct, even though it's unpopular. You have to be able to sacrifice your political capital if you want to achieve your objectives. And I was warned that it was going to happen, and it happened. My favorability went down uh, dramatically, but I have the great satisfaction of ending the war with the FARC after 50 years, and uh, that, of course, has make, made it worthwhile in every respect. I was in Colombia last year and was traveling with a friend who was doing a project. We met lots of young people who were entrepreneurs and who were building new things in Colombia. And I, I did have a feeling that this is a country where there was a lot of optimism. People kept beginning sentences by saying, now that we have peace, now that the war is over, now we can do things that we couldn't do before. But at the same time, they weren't at all enthusiastic about the deal, about the rebels entering the political process. It was a very strange contrast. You, you know, it was as, as if they were half convinced that this was a good thing and they saw why it was beneficial, but they didn't feel optimistic about the process itself. This happens in every peace process. The people like peace, but they don't like to pay the price for peace. The price in this case was to see the guerrillas, terrorists who had committed tremendous uh, atrocities, uh, war crimes, in Congress. A lot of people, of course, don't like it. I don't like it. But it's the necessary price you have to pay in order to have peace. I prefer to have them in Congress uh, shouting and uh, making speeches than to have them in the jungles kidnapping and putting bombs. How do you bring society around? What is the? Do you have advice for your successors? How do you... And how do you convince people that this is a good way to end the conflict? Because I know some people are not convinced. One of the most difficult uh, problems that you confront in a process of this sort is to tell the people that they have to learn how to forgive, how to reconciliate. And this is uh, very hard to tell a mother whose daughter or son have been killed, raped, to forgive the perpetrators. This is a very, very difficult but I learned from the victims that the victims, and this is a very strange paradox, were the ones who at the end were more enthusiastic about ending the war because they did not want other people to suffer what they suffered. For me, that was a lesson in life. I never expected that. On the contrary, people who had never experienced war or was not affected by war were the ones who were more critical of the peace process. But this is something which is normal in many other processes. I studied them. For example, in the case of Israel and Palestine, Prime Minister Rabin, who paid with his life the peace process he did with the Palestinians, experienced that from the Israeli people who did not want the Palestinians to have a say in Israeli politics. And this is a, a common denominator of almost every peace process. Mandela was very much criticized by his own people for being too lenient. But as he said, if you want peace, you need to make transactions. Did you meet with victims? Yes. yes. I had a 
marvelous experience. A professor from Harvard went and visited me at the beginning of my government and said, you are embarking in a very, very difficult trip. I advise you when you're sad, when you're about to throw in the towel, to talk to the victims, tell you their dramas, what they have gone through. That will re-energize you. And that's what I did. I had uh, as a discipline to talk to victims every week or every two weeks to different victims. And that served through the process with six years as a tremendous re-energizer. Every time I talked to a victim, I came out saying, I have to continue. I have to persevere. And they, the victims, were the first ones to tell me, President, don't throw in the towel. Continue. Persevere. What was your experience like of speaking to the rebels whom, whom you'd fought against for many years? You need to put yourself in their shoes. Empathy is very important in any negotiation. What is it that they want? What are their concerns? What are their ideals, their objectives? If you don't have an idea of what they want, it's very difficult to negotiate. So I came into the negotiation with tremendous apprehension. I was their worst enemy, but uh, I made it as one of my objectives to build trust, that they they started trusting me and I started trusting them. Of course, I put many sort of measures throughout the process to confirm that they were negotiating in good faith, and I think they did the same with me. And at the end, the trust was there, that I was negotiating in good faith and that they were negotiating in good faith, and that was essential. From your experience, do you think you can generalize? You learned from other conflicts which you studied. Are there lessons that you would like to pass on to others when you look around the world, when you look at, you know, at Israel-Palestine or at some of the other other civil wars uh, that continue? Yes, there are many lessons. First, that every conflict can have a solution. Five years ago, six years ago, nobody in Colombia thought that a peace agreement with the FARC was possible. And people say that we made possible the impossible. And uh, that is a lesson for any conflict. If you find the correct conditions and uh, you find the correct moment, because there are moments in a process which are essential to have a successful negotiations, I think every conflict in the world can be solved. Any other specific lessons? I mean, is it, is it, just, is it just being uh, optimistic or there's, are there specific? Uh, to solve any, any conflict, you, you need to know what uh, the counterpart really wants. Uh, you need to be able to convince the international, uh, in today's world, the international community of a solution to this conflict. Uh, you need to know where you draw your red lines, but where, where you can give to the counterpart what is necessary to obtain peace. For example, in the case of Colombia and in the case of today's conflicts, there is no way you can have a, a solution with total impunity because uh, all countries are, are subject to the Rome Treaty, which is a treaty that was negotiated by the international community precisely to allow peaceful solutions of armed conflicts. In that uh, Rome statute, 
the International Criminal Court was born, was created, and uh, transitional justice was, uh, in a way, invented. And uh, the negotiation in the case of Colombia, and in any case, was uh, go and negotiate as much justice as you can without sacrificing peace. And this is the nutshell of any conflict today. You cannot have total amnesty for war criminals or people who have committed uh, terrorist acts that uh, are considered uh, crimes against humanity. But how to punish them, how to judge them, is an essential part of any conflict today. In the case of Colombia, it's the first time that the two parts sat down and negotiated a special tribunal to apply transitional justice. And this is uh, being uh, showed as an example for other conflicts uh, from now on. Lots of people say whenever you approach a country in the throes of a civil war or a difficult conflict, I'm, I'm thinking of Libya, I'm thinking of several other particularly difficult places, people from those places will say, oh, our country is so specific, our conflict is to do with our history. You know, there aren't any lessons we can learn from the outside. It sounds like you don't agree with that. No, because uh, we're all human beings. We all have concerns. We all want to live in peace. And uh, you get any conflict, be it a religious conflict, uh, ethnic conflict. These conflicts can be solved when there's goodwill from both parts and a conviction that uh, peace is better than war. There are a lot of countries that have now have very deep divisions and deep polarization, which ha doesn't necessarily lead to, to civil war or violence. One might even say that the United States right now is, is very bitterly divided and polarized. Do you have advice for Americans about how they can think about overcoming these deep civic divides? Well, this is a problem that is present almost everywhere in the world, uh, this deep polarization. That's when emotions take over and arguments are left to one side. We, we must try to recuperate the importance of the arguments, of uh, dialogue, and not simply react with your emotions. This is much easily said than done. But it is, again, a necessary condition to try to diminish the polarization that we're seeing in the U.S., in Colombia, in Europe. For example, what is happening in Europe due to the problem of migration. When you analyze the problem of migration in Europe, this is a very, very small problem to create such political reaction. And uh, you have to be able to explain to the public opinion that the problem is not as big as many people are trying to present it. Uh, the problem is minimal. Uh, I will give you a statistic. In Colombia, we have today many more Venezuelan refugees than the whole amount of refugees that have gone into Europe. We had been able to cope with that. How is it possible that in Europe, governments are falling because of that? It's uh, simply an example of, to show you uh, that many of the problems that have caused this polarization are not that big. And the big challenge is to try to explain uh, why this is so and, and try to uh, reduce this polarization. Are there examples of 
ordinary Colombians or groups of Colombians who contributed to the peace process um, by their actions? Is there, are there examples you can give? Oh, many, many examples. Uh, I will tell you one specific example. Her name is Pastora Mira. Her son was tortured and then killed. Two weeks later, somebody went into her house. He was wounded. He took care of him. And uh, when he recovered, he saw a photograph of her with her son. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, I was the one who killed him. And I was the one who tortured him. And she reacted in the most spectacular way, positive way, saying, thank you for telling me, because I will forgive you, and this will liberate me from my hate. That story for me was so powerful. Liberate me from my hate. Uh, this is what the world needs, to be liberated from hate. And uh, this specific example, I can mention the 100 in the war in Colombia, people who really are the heroes of this uh, peace process. That's why when I received the Peace Prize and Nobel Laureate, I said, this is not for me, it's for the victims. Liberation from hate is such a beautiful idea and a possible reality too. But keeping the peace is always ongoing work. Since Juan Manuel Santos ended his term as president, his successor, Ivan Duque, has actually undone much of his work. Some dissident FARC rebels started to fight again and lawlessness prevails in some parts of the country. And sadly, the number of social activists being killed is on the rise. As we've heard, achieving peace is incredibly difficult and maintaining peace is possibly even more so. Colombia has a difficult road ahead, but things are undeniably better there now than the darkest days of the conflict, and their example is really one to learn from. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter, and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.